Section 50 of D. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joseph Grimer. G. K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1922, by G. K. Chesterton. On being called Teutonic. A very cordial critic on the New Statesman recently did me the honour to call me Teutonic, which I acknowledge, if not with grace, at least with gratitude, not unmixed with self-control, for it was really intended as a compliment. Unfortunately, the compliment was to my erudition about things of which I happen to be hugely ignorant. He begins more cheerfully by saying, Of course, Mr. Chesterton must have read all the old ballads written in the English tongue. Mr. Chesterton wishes to God he had but it is quite true that he has read a good many of them, and is always glad to read more. His position, however, becomes less secure, and he may perhaps have read all the few existing epics and fragmentary poems of the Saxon Scops. Here, alas, I must begin to wave away the tribute. No Saxon Scop, no Scop of any kind, has overshadowed my private life. Anglo-Saxon alliteration frowned not upon my humble birth, and only rhyme, if it be nursery rhyme, marked me for its own. I will admit any amount of indebtedness to English ballad-mongers, but not to the Saxon Scops. In the words of one of the finest old ballads written in the English tongue, to which I am so much devoted. No, Douglas, said Earl Percy then, thy proffer I do scorn. I will not yield to any Scop that ever yet was born. A prize of one halfpenny will be offered for the most plausible scholarly emendation of the above text. But anyhow, my researches in the Saxon culture have not yet gone so far as to know exactly what a scop is. But indeed, my knowledge seems to soar far beyond any smattering about such trifles as scops, whatever they are. The following is a summary of my scope, not scop, of learning and sources of information and influence. Add to that, if you like, everything else Teutonic, be it Danish, Icelandic or German, though one cannot tell which particular poems. A reviewer who turns over the pages of, say, three representative German anthologies containing selections from medieval to recent times, one of them to a student's drinking songbook, will certainly find a great deal that is remindful of Mr. Chesterton, both in this and in his other verse books, particularly noticeable in their intensely racial outlook and something straightforwardly musical, resonant and rhetorical in the language, to say nothing of their wine and beer imbibing enthusiasm. It is evident from this that I know a great deal without knowing it. I am the devil of a fellow at the study of all sorts of things, as long as they are only Teutonic, to know anything Icelandic is rather beyond my own modest claims. To know everything Icelandic would seem a considerable claim for anybody. But though the critic notes the normally and generally Icelandic quality in my personality and poetry, he admits that he cannot at the moment put his finger on the particular Icelandic saga that has had the most influence on my life. I fear I cannot help him. As a matter of fact, I don't know a word of German. I do not know a word of any other Teutonic language except English. English really is a Teutonic language. Unfortunately, it's really quite as much of a Latin and French language. Indeed, my ignorance of German is so complete that I am more accustomed to being charged with incompetence to judge the German traditions than with any inclination to follow them. When I was engaged in controversies with Germans and pro-Germans during the war, it was frequently objected that I could not judge German action without understanding German speech, to which I was content to answer that there are some actions that speak much plainer than any speech. If a Zulu burns down my house, including my library, I shall not primarily lament the loss of my pocket Zulu English dictionary, which might have enabled me to discover whether he came as a friend or foe. 
Yet it was quite as wantonly that the Teutonic barbarians burned down the great library of Louvain, including doubtless the dictionaries of the very Teutonic tongues which I speak like a native. If a gigantic Patagonian comes to my front door and calmly cuts the throat of the maidservant for saying, not at home, I shall not be satisfied with sending for the Patagonian interpreter who lives round the corner to explain whether the visitor's intentions are honourable. And when the Teutonic tyrants executed a poor English sea captain for no crime whatever except doing his ordinary duty and trying to save his ship, they did exactly the same thing, and I have as quite as little need for an international interpreter. Crime is a very cosmopolitan form of Esperanto, and death and hell talk a very universal language. I have no need to call on my vast linguistic resources in the matter. If I talked with the tongues of men and the tongues of angels, let alone Danes and Icelanders, I should not need them to judge of the barbarians when he crosses the borders, whether he vaunts himself and is puffed up, whether he behaves himself unseemly, whether he thinks evil, whether he rejoices in iniquity, or whether he hates the truth. But though of some Teutonic things I may know nothing, I know something of the sort of people who know nothing else, and from other things that I do know I can judge of something unbalanced in their culture, even at its best. I have every reason to speak kindly of the particular critic I quoted who spoke so kindly of me, or joking apart, I thank him most heartily for a highly interesting and only too indulgent criticism. But I do not think it is an unfriendly return for it if I say that his theory of my concentration on Teutonism is primarily a proof of his own concentration on it. I am sure that he has read all the few existing epics and fragmentary poems of the Saxon Scots. I am sure that he really does wallow in everything else Teutonic, be it Danish, Icelandic, or German. I congratulate him quite seriously upon his scholarship, especially in a branch of study I have myself neglected. But I think that even in his own statement there is internal evidence that he has neglected other things. He follows the tradition of the Victorian critics, in always looking amid the northern nations for things which are, were at least as common in the south as the north, and in most cases that had actually been borrowed by the north from the south. Indeed, the point might be sufficiently proved by a mere list of the words which he himself uses and tracing all my favourite traditions to the Teutonic root. He says the quality he describes is rhetorical. Where does he suppose the word rhetoric comes from? He says it expresses a wine-imbibing enthusiasm. Where does he suppose the word wine comes from? Properly understood, the case would be the same with the word music, and even with the unfortunate word paradox. Does he suppose the savage Frisians of the primeval fens chatted every day about rhetoric and paradox? At any rate, does he think they did it more than the Latins and the Greeks? But the truth is just as true about the other and less obvious cases. There are drinking songs in Germany, especially in the old southernized and afterwards submerged Germany. But to hear many people talk, one would think that there had never been any drinking songs except in Germany. This simply means that so long as people had a contempt for the old Latin civilization, they also had a complete ignorance of it. There are songs about wine all over the world, at least wherever the divine gift of wine has gone, it has awakened songs. It awakened songs in Germany because it went to Germany. But where did it come from? It came from where rhetoric and paradox came from, from where nearly everything else comes from. I admit I am in no position to dogmatise about where Scots come from. I am equally ill-informed about where they went to. For the rest, I should be much misunderstood if anyone were to take too literally the critic's phrase about my public and political attitude, which he contrasts from his own standpoint with my unconscious and instinctive attitude. 
He says I pretend to fearfully hate all Germans. I applaud his splendid defiance of the pedants, who split hairs about split infinitives, but I cannot admit that I pretend this, or that my real pretension is only a pretense. I do not fearfully hate all Germans. I do not hate the people who gave us Grimm's fairy tales, or the people who act in the Oberammergau passion play. I do not hate Albert Dürer or a man I'd once drank beer with in Cologne, who thought it only correct and constitutional to supplement the toast of the Kaiser with the toast to each of the separate princes and rulers of Germany, giving them a mug each. What I hate is not a number of people, north or east of a particular line, but a mental and moral habit of looking for the light of progress northward instead of southward, that is, in barbarism rather than in civilization. We may call that heresy Teutonic, as it is perpetually called itself Teutonic. It is truer to call it Prussian, because the whole spell of it was the success of Prussia. It was not a nation, but a notion. It was not even a human tribe, but a very inhuman heresy which hardened and heathenized a large number of tribes. A simple test will be sufficient to show that this fact is not affected by any of the arguments about any of the Teutonic languages and traditions, with which I am supposed to be so familiar. My genial critic credits me with knowing the Icelandic language and the Danish language and the German language, but even his generosity will not say that I know the Prussian language. There is no Prussian language, properly understood. There is no Prussian literature. There was a Prussian system, which began with a man whose fortunate language was that of Voltaire, and ended with a man whose favourite literature was that of Kipling. It was an international heresy, and because I call it a heresy, I call what conquered it a crusade. End of section 50 Recorded by Joseph Grimer End of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns The New Witness, 1922 By G.K. Chesterton